Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me again to Matthew chapter 28. That's where we'll start this morning. We'll also be looking at texts we read earlier from Luke and Acts uh, as well. Before we jump into the, the topic this morning, I want to give you a little preview of where, Lord willing, we're going to be going over the next number of months in our preaching. Uh, this morning, we're beginning a short series on the mission of the church. It's a short series. It's five sermons. That's short for me. You all know that. Uh, short series on the mission of the church, and we'll get to what that looks like in a moment. Uh, then uh, that'll take us up to about the middle of February, and then from mid-February till Easter, We'll do uh, another six-week or so series looking closely at Isaiah 53 and this prophecy of uh, the coming suffering of Christ, taking just a few verses at a time, reflecting on what it teaches us about His cross work. And then uh, beginning, at the beginning of April, right after Easter, we're going to begin uh, a series, not a short series, a long series, uh, through the Gospel of Mark. And that will take us with some breaks here and there, uh, basically up through Easter of 2025. I like to plan ahead. Of course, uh, as one of our elders reminded me this morning, the final draft of the sermon is always the one that you preach. And so all sermon topics and texts are uh, provisional until they actually come out of my mouth. But Lord willing, that's what we'll be doing over the next coming months. Like I said this morning, we're beginning a short series on the mission of the church, beginning with this most basic question, what is the mission of the church? But why ask this question? Why, why have a series on it? We begin, in, in Philippians 1.27, Paul says of the Philippian church that he longs to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we have, if we as a church are going to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel and to do so with one mind, then it would seem logical that we should have a clear, shared understanding of what we are striving side by side with one mind for. What is that goal to which we are striving? But also, like a, like a ship at sea, the church is always susceptible to being thrown off course by storms and gales and waves from the world. And this certainly can and does happen to churches as they are thrown off course doctrinally, as they stray from orthodox biblical theology, or as they are thrown off course morally, as they stray from biblical ethics, but it can also happen missionally. A church that is thoroughly faithful to the Bible, both in its doctrine and its morality, may yet drift off course with regard to its mission, the task for which it's sent into the world. It can be committed to many good things and yet miss what Jesus has actually commissioned it to do. If we don't keep our ship aligned with the infallible compass of the Word of God, pointing us toward that goal for which Jesus has has commissioned us, and the wind and the waves will inevitably push us off course. 
and will sometimes do so so imperceptibly that we don't notice until we, until we end up hundreds of miles from our destination. And so we need to be regularly reminded and reoriented to what our mission actually is. There are lots of things that churches might do and can do, but what is it that churches must do? That's where we begin this series, trying to answer that question. What is the mission of the church? And to answer that question from the Scriptures, we'll look first at the commission that Christ Himself gives to His followers, the mission that He entrusts to them and sends them into the world to accomplish. And then second, we'll look at what the apostles actually did in obedience to that commission, because what they did tells us something about what they understood that commission to mean when they received it from Christ. So first, Christ's commission, and second, the apostles' example. We begin then with Christ's commission. What is it that that Jesus has actually commanded the church to do? Of course, there are many things that Jesus commanded of his followers, many things that we, his followers, are called to obey, but we're, we're asking here, what is the task that Jesus sends his followers into the world to accomplish? We find in the gospel several places where Jesus, after his resurrection, issues standing orders to his followers as to what their mission is. We call this the Great Commission. We will look at two of the most substantial of those passages, both of which we read earlier, Matthew 28 and Luke 24. So as we look here, we'll see first what we are commissioned to do, and then second, how we are to do it. Jesus talks about both. He gives a what and a how. What are you to do and how are you to do it? So first, what we are commissioned to do by Christ find the answer in Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Making disciples. That is the mission of the church. Everything else in in these verses is supporting or explaining that main idea. We are sent into the world to make disciples of Jesus among all people. We're going to talk more in detail next week about what a disciple is, so that we both know what we are supposed to be as his followers, and also what we are called to make. But for now, I'll give you just a very brief definition. In short, a disciple is a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who is learning to follow him. A baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who is learning to follow him. At its root, the the word disciple just means learner or student. And in the ancient world, the disciple was often somebody who would follow a master with the goal of submitting themselves to that master, learning from them, becoming like them. And the word disciple, especially as it's used here in Matthew 28 and then also throughout the book of Acts, means more specifically those who are trusting Jesus as their Savior and following Him as their Lord. 
Through faith, they have heard his word. They have believed in him. They have crossed from death to life. And now they are learning from him and growing to become like him. That is to say that in the Bible, the word disciple is actually just synonymous with the word Christian. We're going to talk more about that next week. But for now, just notice here that the main task that Christ gives his people on earth is to lead more people to become his disciples, to trust and follow him. There are many good things that Christians can and should be involved in, but this is the church's mission. You'll notice also here Jesus says something of the scope of this mission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, when we use the word nations, we commonly will will have in mind nation states, political entities. But the biblical word for nation is ethne. It's where we get our word ethnic. It's not talking about political entities so much as it's talking about peoples. So this might better be translated, make disciples of all peoples. There's no one who is excluded from this divine mandate Jesus said he would build his church, and it's going to be a multi-ethnic, multinational family. We looked at the book of Revelation last week. If we were to go back into Revelation, in Revelation 5, the apostle John hears the angels singing to Jesus, saying, Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And the means by which God has determined to gather that ransomed, blood-bought people from every tribe and language and nation is through the church's ministry of making disciples of Jesus among all people. And this idea gets repeated in different ways, both in, in Luke 24 and in another passage in, early in the book of Acts. These different accounts of Christ's commission to his church. In Luke 24, we read, Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. It's the gospel. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Again, in Acts chapter 1, he says to the disciples as he's preparing to ascend into heaven, You will be my witnesses. You'll testify about me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The church's mission is a global mission. We are to make disciples of Jesus among all people. Now, does that mean that every Christian is expected to be a cross-cultural missionary? Or does it mean that the only ones who are really making disciples are the cross-cultural missionaries and everybody else is sort of on the B team? No. Cross-cultural missions is one important way of making disciples. We clearly value that here at Cornerstone as we support lots of cross-cultural missionaries. But it's not the only way of making disciples. Making disciples is not just something that happens over there. It's something that happens right here, too. And while it's true that not every Christian is called to be a cross-cultural missionary, though perhaps some of you are or will be, in any event, Christians, every Christian, all Christians are called to be disciple-makers 
wherever they are. And we'll talk about that more in coming weeks. But here we see Jesus says the mission of the church, what he's sending the church into the world to do is to make disciples of Jesus among all people. But Jesus doesn't tell us only what we're commissioned to do and then sort of leave it up to us to figure out how to do it. He also tells us how we're actually going to go about accomplishing that mission. So now we go from what we are to do to how we are to do it. So if we put together the different passages in which the risen Lord commissions his followers, we find that we are to go about this work of making disciples by proclaiming, baptizing, and teaching. These are sort of the action steps that Jesus gives us. And in, and in one respect, that might seem obvious, but there are some who would argue that making disciples it's actually far more about living like Jesus than about bringing others to faith in Jesus. And it's an admirable desire to emphasize the importance of something like what Jesus called the greatest commandment, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's certainly very important. Jesus commanded it. We ought to do that. But some seem to effectively make the great commandment into the Great Commission, that the church's mission in the world is to love God and love your neighbor. And so things like acts of mercy and compassion, again, wonderful, commanded by Jesus, are emphasized as being paradigmatic of the church's mission. While things like calling people to deny themselves, repent of their sins, and swear allegiance to Jesus are de-emphasized, or worse, discarded entirely. And when this happens, the church loses its distinctive witness and just becomes one among many social service organizations that go about doing good. And as important as the great commandment is, it is not, strictly speaking, the commission of the church. What it has received from Christ, Christ has sent us to make disciples, he says, by proclaiming, baptizing, and teaching. We see this in these passages, first that we're to make disciples by proclaiming. This features prominently in Luke 24. Jesus again says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You will give testimony to these things. Making disciples begins with proclaiming the gospel. Jesus said that his disciples were witnesses of the, the fact that he would suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And again in Acts 1.8, he says, not only have you witnessed this, but you will be my witnesses. Jesus' followers are to be witnesses, proclaimers of the historical and theological facts of the gospel. We read Paul summarized in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and then on the third day He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. And His disciples are also to bear witness to the, the necessary implications of the gospel, what it promises what it requires to receive what is promised. 
Jesus says this as well in Luke 24. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. And so we not only announce the historical facts, Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose. We not only, we not only proclaim the theological truth, Christ died in our place for our sin, we also proclaim that those who repent and believe in Christ will receive forgiveness of sins and life in His name. And this is an essential part of what it means to make disciples, proclaiming the gospel of Christ in such a way that men and women hear and repent and believe and cross from death to life. No one can be a disciple who does not hear and believe the gospel. The mission of the church is irreducibly one of verbal proclamation. The church's work of making disciples is undeniably word work. After all, Paul says in Romans 10, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Making disciples means first and foremost proclaiming the gospel of Christ. That's not the only thing that we all do to make disciples. That proclamation is, is not the end of the process, it's actually just the beginning. And so Jesus says we're not only to proclaim, but we're also to baptize. Look again, Matthew 28 Verse 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And one of the things that will characterize this ministry of making disciples is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. After we've proclaimed Christ and people have crossed from death to life through faith in Jesus and become his disciples, we're told to baptize them. This is the the outward public sign and declaration of one's allegiance to Jesus. It's the outward sign of that inward faith in Christ by which we cross from death to life, by which we declare, I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's also a means by which we are visibly marked out as belonging not just to Jesus, but also to His church. It reminds us that, that through our mission of disciple-making, Jesus isn't just saving a bunch of discrete individuals. He's building a church, a global family of His blood-bought people that is regularly manifested in local congregations. Baptism is a sign that we both belong to Jesus and to His people. And it's a sign that Jesus' people recognize you as belonging both to Jesus and to them. Now, it, it may surprise us a bit that this is included so prominently in the Great Commission. And that's because I think we often have a tendency to downplay the importance of baptism out of a fear that somebody might accidentally think that we are saying that it conveys salvation in some kind of mechanical sense. And so we're hesitant to insist on it, and we, 
we end up having a sort of nonchalant attitude toward it. Jesus says, be baptized, but I mean, you don't, you don't really need to. I mean, in fact, it's really kind of an optional add-on to your discipleship, but only if you want, and then only when you decide it's time. It's unequivocally true that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet Jesus evidently thought baptism was important enough to include it in his commission to the church. Jesus expects disciples to be baptized, which is why I think we can define a disciple as a baptized believer. And I think the implication of what we read here and throughout the New Testament should challenge us. If we say we want to be saved by Jesus and follow Him as Lord, and He instructs us to be baptized, then what does it communicate if we say, Jesus, I want to follow you, but then say, I don't really want to be baptized, though? Jesus said in Luke 6, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Well, it's true that baptism as an act in and of itself doesn't convey salvation. It's not a means or a qualification for receiving eternal life. At the same time, there's really no category in Scripture for an unbaptized disciple. The apostles wouldn't have known what to do with that idea. In the Bible, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be baptized. Is it possible to be saved and not be baptized? Yes, the thief on the cross is exhibit A. But we must hasten to add that this in Scripture is the exception, not the norm. I'm afraid that the sort of indifferent attitude we often have toward baptism leads us to consider it as far more optional. And thus, to be an unbaptized Christian is far more normal. And as a result, we take baptism far less seriously than Jesus does. And listen, it was seven years after I began walking with the Lord that I was baptized. So I am coming from a place of having looked at my life and said, oh, I don't think I did that the right way. I think I was actually walking in disobedience. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you've not been baptized, then my challenge to you is what is to keep you from being baptized? And you might say, do I really need to? I mean, you literally just said you don't need to be baptized to be saved. But yet I think that's the wrong question. Following Jesus is not about the bare minimum that you need to do to get to heaven. The question that a true disciple must ask is, what does my Lord call me to do? So Pastor Ryan and I would be most happy to talk to anybody who wants to be baptized as a mark of their allegiance to Jesus. So we're to make disciples of Jesus among all people, first by proclaiming, second by baptizing, and then third by teaching. Again, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. I said earlier that the word disciple at its root means one that's a learner or student. And this command to teach reminds us that our goal in making disciples is not merely to get people across some proverbial salvation line. Becoming a disciple through faith is, is not the finish line of the race, it's the starting line. 
Believing in Christ and receiving life in his name is the beginning of a new life in which we, we run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. A follower of, of Christ, a disciple, is not only one who confesses that Jesus is Lord, but, but who also is being increasingly conformed to the image of their Lord, learning to become like him. Jesus said, a disciple is, uh, no disciple is greater than his master, but every disciple, when he is fully trained, will be like his master. To be a disciple is to take on a life of learning, being a, a student of Jesus. Jesus himself said, come to me and I will give you rest and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. They go together. To be a disciple is not less than coming to Jesus and finding rest for your soul in Him, but it's also taking on a life of learning to become like Him. And this teaching is not just the acquisition of information. The teaching that Jesus envisions us doing to make disciples is teaching that results in transformation. Jesus calls us to teach obedience to what He has commanded. It's not less than growing in knowledge, but it's more. It's knowledge applied in worshipful obedience. And this is where I think something like the great commandment fits into the mission of the church. To teach disciples to obey everything that Jesus commanded means to teach them to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to teach them to love their neighbors as themselves, to care for one another, to have compassion for the poor, to seek justice for the oppressed. These things should increasingly characterize disciples of Jesus as they grow because they characterized Jesus. We are to be people who are zealous for good works, and yet in and of themselves doing those things are not the primary mission of the church. They're the outworking of the church faithfully carrying out its mission to make disciples of Jesus and teach them to obey all that he commanded. So part of making disciples includes teaching them to obey Jesus. And I would be remiss at this point if I didn't mention that all of this work, this proclaiming, this baptizing, this teaching can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, we're going to come back to this in a few weeks, but I can only mention it now. We see it in Luke 24. Jesus tells his followers that they will be his witnesses, but then he doesn't tell them to go. He tells them to stay. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. That's really important. Important enough that Jesus says, you need to wait until this happens before you go. His commission is urgent, but it would be impossible for his followers to do it if they didn't first receive his divine enabling for it through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Like I said, we're going to come back to that in a few weeks because it's really central to understanding how making disciples actually happens, but I just need to mention it now so you didn't think I was skipping over it. So the mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus among all people by proclaiming Christ, baptizing people into Christ in his body and teaching obedience to Christ all in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
That's what Jesus has sent the church into the world to do. That's why we exist. Now, one of the ways that we can confirm and, and flesh out our understanding of that mission is to look at what those who first received it actually did with it. How did the apostles in the early church understand Christ's commission to them and go about their ministry? The place we find the apostles' example, of course, is primarily in the book of Acts. And if we, we look there, we find a church folk, not uh, focused on let me try that again. If we were to look there and find a church, not proclaiming, baptizing, and teaching, but focused on other things, then we might have to say we need to rethink how we understand what Jesus is actually commissioning us to do. But if we look there and we do find them prioritizing this mission of making disciples, proclaiming, baptizing, teaching, that strengthens our conviction that this is what the church is called to do. If you were to open the, the book of Acts just about any page, you'd likely find some evidence that the apostles and the other Christians understood that their purpose in the world was to help people become forgiven followers of Jesus, growing to become like Him. And as they went about this mission, what did they do? They proclaimed Christ, they baptized people into Christ and in His body, and they taught them to obey Christ, all in the power of the Holy Spirit. In your outline, I've listed a few passages that we read earlier. I'm going to refer to some others as well as we, as we take a whistle-stop tour through the book of Acts, showing how the apostles actually carried out this commission that Jesus had given to them. At first, we find throughout Acts, the apostles in the early church understood their mission to be one of proclamation. We see it in Acts 2 when the apostles are, notably, filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and when they are filled with the Holy Spirit, what happens? Peter stands up and preaches the gospel. We see it again in Acts 3, in Acts 4, in Acts 5, as the apostles preach the word and the power of the Holy Spirit, and the number of disciples multiplies greatly in response to their preaching. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are confronted by the Jewish authorities and charged not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. They would have been perfectly happy for, for Peter and John to go about doing good works as long as they didn't preach and preach in his name. But Peter and John knew this was not an option. They knew that their mission could not just be to live like Jesus. So what did they say in response as they were challenged? They said, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Theirs was a mission of proclamation. We see it in Acts 10, which we read earlier, when Peter is sent to Cornelius. Peter knows what his mission is. It's not just to love Cornelius as his neighbor, as good as that is. Peter knows his mission is to speak the word of God. And he starts by proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done. Interestingly, Peter actually says here that after Jesus rose from the dead, he commanded us to preach to the people. And to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Peter actually tells us here that his understanding of what Jesus commanded them to do was first and foremost to preach, to proclaim. And then he announces the implications of that proclamation. Whoever believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
Paul and Barnabas traveled to the cities of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. What do they do? When they enter the city, they begin proclaiming. In Acts 13, they, they come to the city of Pisidian Antioch. They preach in the synagogue, showing how Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of, of Old Testament prophecies, how he was put to death and raised from the dead. And then they say, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed, literally justified, from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And then again in Acts 14, we read of Paul and Barnabas in the city of Derbe, and what do they do? It says they preached the gospel, and as a result, made many disciples. And it's important to note here that this mission of proclamation was evidently not the job of the apostles only. We can't say, well, that was their mission, but that's not for us sort of normal non-apostles. In Acts 8, we read that when persecution came to the church in Jerusalem, all the Christians were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, who were evidently still in Jerusalem. And then in Acts 8.4, it says, those who were scattered, so everyone but the apostles, went about preaching the word. And we see the same thing in Acts 11. We read that those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word. And then there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. It's not the apostles who were doing the proclaiming in these cases, not the professional Christians. It was all the other followers of Jesus whose names are lost to history but known to God. So we should not think of this proclaiming as a task limited to only a select few. It was the responsibility of the whole church. We should not think about proclaiming or preaching exclusively in the sense of a sermon. That's, that's one form of speaking the word of God, but it's not the only one. So we're going to come back again. We're going to come back to that in a few weeks as we think about how the whole church is involved in this work of disciple-making. We could list more examples from the book of Acts. When the, when the apostles received Christ's commission, they evidently took it to mean, first and foremost, that they were to preach Christ and call people to repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins in His name. And moreover, they clearly taught the rest of the church that this was their mission as well because the other Christians started to do the same thing. And as a result, we read in Acts several times the the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied greatly, or the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily. So the apostles understood their mission of making disciples to begin with proclamation, but also to include baptizing those who received their message and committed themselves to Jesus. And it happens repeatedly in Acts. Whenever the apostles preach Christ, people respond in repentance and faith, and very soon afterward, they're baptized. In Acts 2, those who heard Peter's preaching, received his word, were baptized. In Acts 10, Cornelius and his household heard Peter's proclamation of the gospel, believed, received the Holy Spirit, and Peter says, who can withhold water from these people for baptizing them? And they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In Acts 16, Paul is is preaching, and the Lord opens Lydia's heart to listen to Paul's preaching, and she believed and was baptized. 
Later in Acts 16, Paul and Silas spoke the word to the Philippian jailer. Remember, he comes to them and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he believed and he was baptized at once. In Acts 18, Paul's in Corinth and we read there that many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Jesus commanded disciples to be baptized, and in Acts, whenever people become followers of Jesus, they're baptized. And so both in Jesus' teaching and the apostles' example, we have good reason to say that the biblical norm is that a disciple is a a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles made disciples by preaching, by baptizing, and then third, by teaching. The apostles were not content simply to preach the gospel, baptize people, and then move on with no concern for those who had become disciples. They knew their commission from Christ was more than just proclaiming and baptizing, but teaching those baptized believers to obey everything that Jesus had commanded, to help them learn, to follow Him, to grow up into spiritual maturity. Again, in Acts 2, the earliest Christians, after they heard the proclamation of the gospel and believed and were baptized, did what? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We read earlier in Acts 11 that when the church in Antioch was planted, Paul and Barnabas came, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas returned to the cities in the church of the churches they had planted, and they went to strengthen the souls of the disciples, to encourage them to continue in their faith. Again, in Acts 15, Paul says to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of God and see how they are. Paul wasn't content to say that he had won and baptized a lot of converts and now he was going to go somewhere else. He wanted to see them established and growing in their faith. So he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. In Acts 18, when Paul's in Corinth after Many had heard his teaching and believed and were baptized. We read that he stayed with them a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. In fact, when Paul doesn't stay in a place for some time to teach the disciples, it's because he's being chased out of town. It seems like his normal pattern to desire not just to preach and baptize, but see disciples taught and trained and brought to maturity and faith. And a number of his letters are written to churches where he couldn't stay and teach And so he's writing to complete his teaching. Paul says as much in Colossians 1.29 that his calling is to proclaim Christ and to admonish and teach everyone that we might present everyone mature in Christ or to use the words of Jesus to make disciples that are fully trained and like their master. The apostles, the early Christians took it to be their mission to make disciples of Jesus among all people by proclaiming, baptizing, and teaching all in the power of the Holy Spirit. If that's what Jesus commanded the church to do, if that's what we see the apostles in the early church doing, then that is what we should be committed to as well. The mission of the church has not changed. We're to make disciples of Jesus among all people. That's why we exist as a church, and there's many things that we can do, but this is what we must do. This is our focus, the goal for which we are to strive side by side with one mind. 
What does that look like in practice? What exactly are we after in making disciples? What does it mean for us to be disciples in the first place? How do we actually go about doing this? What does it look like to continually orient and reorient the ministry of our church around that mission? And those are wonderful questions that you will have to wait for the coming weeks to hear the answers to. We'll explore those more in the coming weeks as we unpack this mission that Christ has given to the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have uh, in your abundant mercy, not just saved us, but you have determined to use us, fallen, fallible, but redeemed people, to accomplish this mission. Thank you that you've not left us alone to do it. You've given us your spirit, the promise that all authority belongs to Jesus, who is with us always. Lord, help us as we as we think about the mission that you've given to the church, help us to see where we fit in that, how we might be faithful to it. We do so with the assurance that Jesus promised that he would build his church. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.